There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. We were expecting to talk about disinformation on this episode. But as you might imagine, given the pace of current events and developments, sometimes we have to change gears. And we did that this week because we got an exclusive interview with the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. One of the topics we discussed was the war in Ukraine. As I have um, watched this conflict now, now in its 11 month, um, it's it's been really interesting to see how it's turned out. Um, the failures of the Russian army, uh, the successes of the Ukrainian army and their military and intelligence services, um, and when I when I really think about it, it's sort of a, what we describe as a protracted conflict. In addition to Ukraine and Russia, we talk about North Korea, Iran, China, DIA's plans, the worldwide threats that are facing the U.S. right now, that and much more. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. At least once a year, and sometimes it's more often than that, I get the opportunity to sit down with the Defense Intelligence Agency director. And this dates back to 2005, almost 20 years. I think I've interviewed every director since General Michael Maples. The press team there has always been and is always first class in making this happen. This time we spoke with Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, and our topics included Ukraine, Russia, North Korea, Iran, China, DIA's plans, worldwide threats, all of that's in this interview, pretty wide-ranging interview with Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of DIA. The first thing I'd like to ask you about is your thoughts about what's taking place in Ukraine. Well, JJ, it's um, it's great to be here with you today. Welcome to DIA. You're you're always welcome here. Um, as I as I have um, watched this conflict now now in its 11 month, um, it's it's been really interesting to see how it's turned out, um, the failures of the Russian army, uh, the successes of the Ukrainian army and their military and intelligence services. Um, and when I, when I really think about it, it's sort of uh, what we describe as a protracted conflict. 
Um, it's a situation where, where resources are at play on both sides and, and the lack of resources are, are keeping it in its sort of current state of, of protracted conflict. So I think from a Ukrainian perspective, it's how much material can they get, how much ammunition can they get to help them take back the territory that is theirs. And on the Russian side, it's about how, how they recover from significant losses to their new look army and how can they uh, acquire the resources to do what Putin wants to do to annex those portions of Ukraine that, that he's in right now. Significant losses. How do, you, how, do you, how do you define that? What does that look like? What does that include? So back in about the 2016 or 2015 timeframe, there was a study that the U.S. Army did on, on the reform of the Russian army. And uh, we call it the, the New Look Army, and they had reorganized themselves into smaller battalion tactical groups from larger formations and sort of shaken that cloak of what was the, the Soviet-era army into a much smaller, more lethal force. They invested in new equipment. Uh, their army became smaller, uh, supposedly more agile. And we, you know, we assumed that that army was pretty good, I think. You know, we, we take our own biases into that kind of analysis, and we looked at their army. Uh, some of that kit looked pretty good. Um, but when they invaded Ukraine, they had some really poor assumptions about how that fight would go. And they didn't correct uh, nearly as quickly as I thought they might. And so they lost a huge amount of manpower, uh, probably some of their best. And they lost uh, a very large amount of equipment in terms of tanks, artillery, missile systems, some aircraft. Uh, their Navy has largely largely survived, but they've lost a few uh, naval combatants as well. And so, so overall, I think, I think the New Look Army is really not what it was. It's probably gone. It is gone, as a matter of fact. And so what they're really relying on now are reserve forces. They had a mobilization. And so they're trying to piece together enough manpower to, uh, to, to conduct the offensive that they need to do or to secure what they've already taken. Ukraine appears to be locked in this brutal battle down in Bakhmut and in Solidar. And they're also at the same time, in fact, today, just today, there was one of those massive drone and cruise missile strikes that took place that sort of blankets the entire country. And they need tanks. They're getting tanks. They need uh, air defense systems. They've gotten most of that already, and they need other things as well. So... Does what does this look like to you? This battle that's shaping up for this spring, because it looks as though there's going to be Russia has lost a lot of troops. I've heard. I don't know what the numbers are. Ukraine says 150 thousand, something like that. But um, it looks as though they're gearing up for another fight uh, in the spring. So what are they going to be fighting with Russia, and what are they going to fight for? So if you if you think about the the Russian system right now, they they have a lot of equipment from the Soviet era, older T fifty five, T sixty two tanks that are in in reserve piles. They have uh, older pieces of artillery. So I, I think their plan is probably to uh, refurb some of that stuff and move as much of that as as they can to support any kind of offensive that uh, that they want to conduct um, in the spring. But but for the Ukrainians, it's about it's about integrating all of the equipment that uh, the partners are giving them. And, you know, they'll, they'll get tanks from the United States, from Germany, from Poland, uh, and others. Those are all different tanks. And so their challenge is to, is to train their soldiers and crews on those tanks and then to be able to fight them in a, in a, in a way that makes sense for maneuver warfare and the ability uh, to amass that equipment, to train on it, to get it ready to go. And, and it's really sort of a race for time. Uh, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, we'll just have to wait and see how this turns out in the spring. Um, the fighting in Bakhmut is very interesting. The Russians have lost a lot of people. 
in that battle. And I think the Ukrainians have done a superb job of defending with a, a smaller force uh, uh, to be able to uh, to do things in other places. So I, th- I think they're thinking about that logically. And, and while the Russians have made some gains uh, in, the, in the vicinity of, of Bakhmut in that area, they've taken tremendous losses to do that. Let me change gears here and sure. uh, ask you about a few other things. Um, in fact, um, equally or more important, I'm looking to know what the top international threats facing the U.S. Uh, through the lens, through DIA's lens, are at this point. Uh, JJ, you, you you won't be surprised when I say that um, we we are guided by uh, Secretary Austin's national uh, defense strategy uh, that still plays as it did uh, last year. Uh, when I when I think about China as the pacing challenge and Russia as the acute threat. And then we have uh, regional hegemons like North Korea and Iran that are, are threatening our, our neighbors and allies in different regions. And then violent extremist organizations uh, are still there and remain a persistent threat to partners all over the world, particularly in Africa and the Middle East. Um, for, for DIA, that means we're, we're going to do what President Obama told us to do in 2013 when he said pivot to the Pacific. We, we are in that mode uh, right now. So as I look at uh, DIA priorities, uh, we have done a couple of things organizationally in the last year or so that, that really um, exhibit that commitment. Uh, first off is a stand-up of a thing called the China Mission Group. So these are hundreds of analysts that are, are focused on uh, the China problem set uh, to include collectors, mission managers, requirements managers, all focused on that problem set. We stood up the Indo-Pacific Regional Center, which focuses on all other aspects of, of the Pacific. I think that posture places us uh, very, very well. And we want to do some investments in the Pacific with our partners in Indo-PACOM in Hawaii, uh, and as well as invest in other partnerships with South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, and Australia. We want to be prepared for any contingency that might come, and, and building our capacity in the Pacific is a big part of that. So certainly focusing on the, the pacing challenge of, of China, but in the meantime, still still working with our integrated crisis group, Russia, to support uh, UCOM. Uh, and their efforts uh, and their partners in Ukraine. And so all of that is taking place now with a lot of activity on a daily basis here in a very busy headquarters. General Barrier, um, <clears throat> Chinese the pacing challenge that you have talked about uh, today and before. We've, we've discussed this before. And I'm, I'm interested, China's had some, some setbacks, it seems, at least based on the news that I've read about the Chinese military and the Chinese government, certainly the economy. So um, how would you classify or characterize that pacing challenge in terms of momentum? Is it um, on a high arc trajectory or are things flattening out or are they going the other way? Where, where, where is that pacing challenge in terms of, um, um, you know, the route that it's taking to get where it's going? Uh, great question. You know, they may had uh, they may have had an ep- economic dip over the last uh, couple of years based on uh, COVID policies, um, a downturn globally uh, in the economic model. So, so that has affected them. We we don't see them uh, slowing down their military modernization, their ability to exercise uh, their encroachment um, against uh, Taiwan. You, you saw when the former Speaker of the House uh, visited the military reaction that they had there. So they they continue. Um, with what I would call aggressive uh, military activity in and around the South China Sea in the area of Taiwan. Uh, so I don't think that has slowed. If anything, uh, that has increased. You know, so the domestic problems uh, uh, that are going on in China right now um, really haven't affected that. Uh, we still see them advancing their Belt Road Initiative, that is to go into uh, countries that, that need uh, financial assistance uh, to uh, help build infrastructure, buy out debt, 
Um, so that, that activity is still ongoing, not always altruistic. Um, there are definitely reasons why, uh, why they do that. We see that in Africa, Latin America, South America. So I, I think that has not slowed. That's interesting. Um, <clears throat> what, well, I know a part of what you do is not just take a look at what issues, problems, and troubles the U.S. has, but you look at that for your adversaries, too. So what are China's biggest problems? Well, I think, uh, you know, first off, they're not energy producers. Uh, they're energy importers. That is a problem. Um, their one-child policy for many, many years is going to give them uh, a demographic issue um, that is existing now and will, will only exacerbate uh, as we go forward in the future. And I think, you know, President Xi has just had his party Congress. He's put uh, folks in place that he trusts. He's clearly uh, in charge. So it's a, it's a one-man show uh, from the perspective of, of the PRC. But, you know, it's really, it's really not about China. It's about the party. And he controls every aspect of the party uh, and the military. And so I, I think from, from my perspective, I separate that activity, what's going on domestically, and I, I acknowledge that. Uh, but we watch his military activity. And as you know, the mission for DI is foundational military intelligence. And for us, it's about understanding uh, that military growth, their capability, and uh, relaying that to, uh, to our, our decision makers in, in the Department of Defense. So... Um Next year, the, the next 12 months or so, what's, what's top? Well, I know you've already said what your big focuses are, you know, in terms of adversarial, I suppose, or, 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 or other countries, et cetera. Yeah. But what's at the top of your list for the next year? So uh, over the course of the next year, uh, internally to DIA, we just need to solidify our organizational construct with uh, the stand-up of the China Mission Group. Uh, the Indo-Pacific Regional Center, um, making sure that we continue to resource those things uh, that we want to do in the Indo-Pacific with our with our PACOM partners. Uh, so that would be uh, number one. Um, number two, I think, would be it's all about the data in, in really two, two levels here. I'm talking about the plethora of data that's available out there to give us insight on what um, threats around the world are doing, uh, whether that's compartmented and, and very sensitive information or whether that's scraping the open source with all that information, that's one set of data. But we also have another set of data here that I'm, I'm worried about at DI, and that's our, that's our business systems and our human resource systems and making sure that we modernize ourselves uh, so that we can take care of the people that are doing all this work. Um, JJ, you probably wouldn't be surprised to know that uh, when you have to prioritize over the years, we haven't prioritized ourselves first. We've always prioritized the mission. Uh, we are taking some time to do that now, and uh, we're making some significant investments in our HR system to be able to do that. And I would say that the third priority, really, as we try to understand um, the pacing threat, the acute threat, it's really about our ability to counter advanced conventional weapons, what we call CACA. And so the ability to acquire foreign material, the ability to understand that material, um, the ability to make sure that our labs that do this work have the best technology, the best engineers and scientists, and the best ability to do that is really going to be key, and we're investing in that as well, and part of a, an entire picture of how um, we modernize to understand uh, what the threat is doing. Related to that is, is Mars, the machine-assisted analytic rapid, uh, rapid system. It is, um, it is um, on its way. Uh, two modules are completed, order of battle and infrastructure, and we've got three modules coming, intelligence mission data, cyber, and space, and uh, we're pretty excited about that. That will be key to our, our foundational understanding uh, for military intelligence going forward and replaces a very old uh, database called MIDB. So this is what you're thinking about for the next year, but this is going to take longer than that to get all of this done. Or are you thinking there's going to be significant 
developments on this in this coming year? No, I think I can get it done this year. I can't. No, I'm kidding. I, of course, I, I, I'm not. This is uh, these are ongoing uh, perennial issues, and so we, we've merely put the put the uh, the train in motion here, and this will this will will take place over the next uh, the next four or five years, and certainly the way we've thought our investments, uh, we think of it in five year increments over the over the FIDEP, and and we've. We've got a plan in place right now, JJ, to uh, to make sure that we fund these things at the right time with uh, the investments to get what we need out of it. One of the things that's not on the list I'd like to ask you about is one of the problems that we have as a world is the attention span of people. And the attention span is impacted in many ways by social media, by events that are going on around us. But one of the things one of your predecessors told me years ago, sitting at probably this very table, um, he said, and this was General um, Burgess, General Ron Burgess, he said the biggest threat to the U.S. is the pace of change. So I just wonder, is that still true? And, and the reason why I say attention span and all that, how, the reason it's connected is because as things change, more things happen, more draws and more requests are made on our time and we have to respond to things so we don't have time to focus on things as much as we used to and I think that's what he was getting at as time continues to roll on we're going to get more of these situations where even folks like yourself and your 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 teammates are going to have less time to focus on very critical issues because another critical issue has popped up so does the pace of change still rank up at the top or near the top there? Well, I think, uh, interesting question, and I know General Burgess well, and, and he's a mentor, um, and I talk to him frequently. I, I, would, I would rather think of it about the speed of, how, the, speed of the information cycle. You know, so if you think about it, um, about 2005 was about when the iPhone came on the scene, and suddenly you have a computer Seven. in your, uh, 2007. It gives you access to instantaneous information like having a computer, and, and I think we probably didn't understand what that would mean until seven or eight years ago. And, and now instantaneous access to information, the proliferation of disinformation um, goes out very, 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 very quickly. And getting that back in and exposing the truth is, is really difficult. W- one of the things I'm most proud of with DI is w- one of our, one of our mottos here is exposing the truth. And if you're, if you're in the, in the museum, you'll, you'll see a couple pieces on this about what our role is to expose the truth and make sure that people understand what really happened, whether that's the, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, from the early 1960s or whether that's um, with a, a series of unclassified documents that we did in the 1980s to expose what the Soviets were doing. You know, we, we created these unclassified Soviet studies. And because we couldn't use really classified information or imagery, we had artists do renderings of what this equipment looked like. And so we proliferated all those all over the place to expose what the, what the Soviets were doing and really, really refuted a lot of the lies that they were telling at the time. So I'm, I'm really proud about DI, of DI for that. Well, so basically the speed of information is a problem still, correct? Maybe, yeah. So maybe, maybe Ron and I are just saying the same thing uh, differently. Uh, I, I think the speed of information, um, you know, whether you're talking about domestic issues in the United States or disinformation in Russia – or, or what the Chinese uh, put out or what they don't put out. I, I think all of that happens very, very rapidly. And we in the intelligence community have to be extremely agile uh, with the ability to uh, dive through that quickly to be able to understand it. And I think our open source effort is, is a key example of, of that, um, you know, in combination with what uh, other agency partners are doing. Uh, we, we try to use our open source to, to really um, 
do the secret sauce, which is we have sensitive intelligence and then we have our open source. It's a more fulsome picture. General, um, very soon, the worldwide threat assessments are probably going to, the hearings are probably going to start, at least the public piece of what we see and what we know about worldwide threat assessments. And I think they're maybe sometimes twice a year, maybe maybe once, I don't know. Sometimes they don't happen at all. I can remember a few years back they didn't happen, really. But um, anything you can share with us about um, what you might uh, see right now as, you know, information that might be worth sharing? Well, I can, I can assure you those, those hearings will happen. They happen in open session and they happen in, in a closed session. And then, JJ, you, you probably know that we have uh, analysts uh, on the Hill all the time engaging with, uh, with staffers uh, of the different committees, uh, committees constantly. So I know, I know that it seems like kind of a spectacle when we all go up and, and, and testify, but really that, that's just an extension of what we're doing all year long. Um, the, the, uh, the, the statement of record from DI is on my desk right now. We're reviewing it. Um, it looks a lot like uh, the statement last year. I think I think we expand a piece on what's happening uh, with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, um, expanding a piece on North Korea with uh, the increases in, in the ballistic missile testing that they've been doing. Certainly, certainly a bit on Iran as they they now seem to have a relationship with Russia that is new and emerging in terms of the the, the weapons and munitions that the Iranians are supplying uh, to the Russians. So there's a bit that's changed, and, and that will be that will be in the uh, in the ATA this year. Um. Are you able to to dig any further on either of those uh, that you mentioned, um, particularly North Korea? So, um, you know, I think KJU sees uh, his ballistic missile and nuclear program as a deterrent and also as a way to secure uh, his regime. Uh, He has invested heavily uh, in those programs to the detriment of his, his conventional forces. Uh, and so he remains at odds with uh, with the Republic of Korea, our key partners, as well as uh, neighbors uh, in the region. And so he, he remains a hegemonic threat uh, in the Indo-Pacific and uh, don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, so his relationship with Russia is, is something that I, I wanted to ask a question about. We've seen Russia sending trains or whatever it is there to get weapons from North Korea to use against Ukraine. What does that tell you about Russia and North Korea? Well, J.J., I think we've, we've seen uh, Russia cast a wide net trying to gain uh, support for uh, what, they're, what they're doing in Ukraine. And so we, we know that they've expended uh, vehicles, munitions, and so they're, they're seeking help from a lot of different uh, entities right now. Um, I, I won't speak to the specific, specifics of North Korea, but, but we know that they're reaching out to a bunch of different parties to try to acquire more material. Okay. Uh, Afghanistan. Um, Things are changing there. Um, One of the really interesting things that I discovered a few days ago was that several or somebody from the Taliban reached out to Twitter and was able to um, secure a blue check mark, which means that you have to pay Twitter $8. This is not... I'm not making fun of this. It's not not something silly, but they are supposed to be sanctioned. They were not supposed to be able to do that. And so apparently, assuming Twitter did its homework, they had to verify that it was indeed somebody who represents the Taliban. The Taliban has gone back on several of its promises, including, you know, the promises it made regarding women. Um, we, we know that there was some concern about 
active terror groups there. And I was talking with a military official from another country not too long ago, and he was saying essentially this over-the-horizon view may not be enough to deal with what the Taliban or Afghanistan may dissolve into in the, in the, in, in, in the future. Any thoughts about Afghanistan right now? Sure. I, I can't speak to the, the blue check mark. No, not sure what, what happened there. But I, I don't think anybody is really surprised on, on how the Taliban has rolled back to any, any commitments uh, that they made. Uh, they are who they are. Um, it's just exceptionally heartbreaking uh, to see conditions in Afghanistan, uh, what women in Afghanistan have to go through, the fact that, that little girls can't get education. It just uh, boggles the mind. Um, in, terms, in terms of counterterrorism, you know, this is the purview of uh, U.S. SOCOM. Um, in their in their CT fight, you know, DIA through our Defense Counterterrorism Center uh, supports those those kinds of operations. I won't speak to the effectiveness of any of that, but I, I would say that that um, you know the United States has been very successful in counterterrorism operations since 9/11. We haven't seen a major attack on United States soil since, and, and that that remains a focus for the entire community. All right, about time to wrap this up. Um, what haven't I asked you about? that you think is important today that you'd like to say something about? Well, I just, I'd, I'd like to just reinforce with you, J.J., about, about the mission that we have here. You know, when you walked in the building, um, along the right-hand side, you can see, you can see the, the creed uh, of DIA and the motto, and it ends with, I am a DIA officer, I am DIA. And when I think about the workforce that we have, and some of them are with us um, in my office right now, these, these are incredible people. Every, every day I walk in the, the building at 5.30, quarter to 6, and I may be walking in with a 23-year-old or I may be walking in with a 73-year-old, and they're all unique. They're all special. Now, they have to, we have to communicate differently with all, all, the, all the layers in between, but the commitment to excellence uh, is, is off the charts. And when I see the work going on here, whether it's folks in our uh, Europe, Eurasia uh, Regional Center supporting, supporting the Ukraine crisis and our partners in Ukraine, or I see what the China Mission Group is doing, or what I see professionals in HR are doing to take care of the workforce, or what our what our uh, finance specialists are doing to make sure the money uh, goes in the right place. It's it's amazing stuff every single day, and I just couldn't be prouder of this workforce and everybody everybody in this building right now and across the enterprise across the globe. That is DIA. You you made me wonder. Um, you, you talked about the the age span here, so you can actually work that long. 70 into your 70s at DIA? Absolutely, you can. We, we have, uh, we, we call them our seniors, and, uh, and they, they bring with them uh, context and perspective that, that others don't have, and I'm actually glad we have them. What do they do? The same thing that everybody else does. Whether, whether they're working on the enabling side or the mission side, you, you can have a, a 73-year-old who is a, a senior analyst in, in one of our regional centers or uh, managing a team that's working uh, finance or acquisition or uh, anything. We probably have a few in, in Joel's shop. How, how do the 23-year-olds engage with these folks? I mean, they can't call them grandma or grandpa. They can't act that way, but surely they need to show them deference, but they also need to welcome them, too, and make sure that they feel included, just like a young youngster coming into any shop would want to feel. But it's kind of, it works on the other end, too, right? You have to make sure these folks feel valued. Hey, it is it is all about uh, dignity and respect and understanding the generations of, of folks that we have here in DI. The way the way a seventy three year old views an issue is not going to be the way a twenty three year old uh, views the, views an issue. So what we encourage is uh, is uh, you know uh, candid conversations with coffee or diet coke or soda just just to, to break down the the cultural or age barriers so that folks can get along. But dignity and respect is the key and. 
honestly, JJ, when we bring new officers into DIA, I, I talk to every class that we call a touchstone, uh, and we, we emphasize how important it is to uh, to uh, to treat people right. But also, also, you know, for our new officers to hey, find find somebody that is successful. Uh, perhaps that doesn't look like you. Uh, that may come from a different part of the world or a different ethnicity, but if they're successful, you should you should snap link into them and have that person be your mentor so that you can learn the culture of this organization, the culture of DIA. Well, I, I've learned a lot today and something I didn't expect to learn, but thank you again, General Barrier. This, this engagement with DIA is always interesting, and there's always something to learn to layer on top of what we know. So thank you again. JJ, my pleasure. Great to see you. Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of DIA. This is the third time in the last two years we've had a chance to sit down. And I have to say, every time I engage with him, I learn a lot in each of those situations. And it's information that it's always something that I can draw on for later. And the staff, again, is first class. Thank you again for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up. In our next episode, the secret, insidious way disinformation moves around social media. So what we have seen uh, is, especially on uh, social media, uh, some of those main narratives, anti-Ukraine narratives, anti-NATO narratives, anti-Western narratives. Urve Eslas is a disinformation expert in the Estonian Government Office Strategic Communications Department. She says the flames of disinformation on social media are being fanned. Especially in Russian language social media. So, how do they fight back? So, we try to build trust between uh, government institutions and NGOs, uh, media organizations, and also between people. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.